trying to fake like I was doing something and knew what I was doing there. Sorry, I forgot to give the heads up there. Thank you so much for that this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter number 8. Very familiar passage this morning on forgiveness. You heard it read. You know the story. Powerful, powerful account. There are quite a few examples in the Bible of God's radical forgiveness. This one is nuanced in a way. If you notice in your ESV Bibles or other translations of the Bible that you're holding in your hand, you likely have a footnote or a textual note of some kind. This account may appear in brackets in your text. And I want to address that this morning. The details of this are quite sensational. This account points us to some incredible truths about sin. But before we get into it, I want to address that uh, messaging that you see in there. Some of you may have gotten a heads up in the video I sent you earlier this week, prepping you for today. What's up with that little note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811? You read that, it's a bead of sweat form on your brow, and you think, oh no, what is going on with these modern translations? Well, I want to help you with that just a little bit. New Testament scholars, most New Testament scholars, the ones that Grace Covenant would recommend to you, do not think that this passage was a part of the Gospel of John when it was first written, but was added later. Hang on, buckle up, everything's fine. I'm going to get there, okay? If you're interested, I posted a very well-written piece. If you want to take a deeper dive and scratch that little academic itch that you have on this, John Piper wrote it better than I've seen anybody else write it, and I did some digging, but he wrote it in an accessible way, and I've posted that on our site this morning. Carson describes it this way, despite the best efforts to prove that this, in fact, was the original part of the earliest manuscripts, it's just not there. The modern English versions are right to make the notation. So when we come to something like this in our Bibles, what do we do with that? What does this do to the trustworthiness of Scripture? I'll answer that. What does it do to... Uh, us when we're thinking, wait a minute, pastor, is this that high criticism that undermines the authority of Scripture? I'm going to answer that. First off, what does it do to the authority of Scripture? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. When you study this, it underscores the rigor that the church has been engaged to for the last 2,000 years to affirm that this is, in fact, the authoritative word of God. It shows that we're committed to demonstrating the trustworthiness of the text. It's one of the many reasons I appreciate this particular translation. It actually underscores that the Bible is trustworthy. Is this that high criticism? No, this is not high criticism. This is textual criticism. And it involves a level of not just knowing Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, but, but understanding like the way the characters are actually written, the style, it's modern day, would be like a handwriting slash linguistic expert. I'm boring you to tears. Hang with me for just a moment. I'll get there, okay? But, but it's this design so that they know exactly where stuff goes and can see the, the, what happened at certain translations, what happened when it was copied at certain times. This is, not, this is not high criticism. It's textual criticism. In fact, if you read John 7 
and you stopped at 52 and then picked up at verse 12 in chapter 8, it, there's a harmony to that. It's beautiful. It's an ebb and flow that's natural. But these same scholars attest to the accuracy and the historicity of this very passage. That nothing here changes Christian doctrine in any way. In fact, all of the little things that they find in textual criticism in the 5,000 plus manuscripts that we have, complete and partial. By the way, that's more manuscripts that we have of our Bible, the New Testament, than is had of other documents that we hold to be historically accurate. But, but all these little variations they find are, are so minuscule, they just find a way to say something better and to make notations when they find them. The evidence is overwhelming here that this is a real event that did happen in Jesus' life and probably fits right here in this part of the timeline, and there's no reason to doubt that it occurred. No truth is omitted by this change. It doesn't undermine Scripture. It strengthens it. In fact... It underscores our doctrinal statement as a church related to the Bible. We affirm that the 66 canonical books of the Bible are the inspired word of God without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of God's will for the salvation of man, and the only infallible guide for faith and living. That's what we say. Here's what the Bible says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. No prophecy ever was produced by the will of man, but came when men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The psalmist would worship the Lord and say, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So whatever we bring out in today's passage, there must be a foundation somewhere else in the scripture to underscore. That's the, that's the weird thing or the nuanced thing about preaching a text with a note like this on it in your Bibles. But here's the deal. Jesus completely forgives. And we see that all throughout God's word. And it's illustrated beautifully in this passage this morning. Uh, here's what we're going to see from the text this morning. Jesus has greater authority than Moses, and Jesus completely forgives. Now, we've already seen both of those play out in John already, and we'll see it all throughout the rest of John's gospel. So, that's the, uh, that's the header for getting into this, because you see that textual note, and you're like, what in the world is that for? That's a very quick explanation of that. I can point you to more resources related to it. Let's look at what's going on in the text this morning. Maybe just follow along with me in your Bibles. I'll put some notes to kind of help put some hooks on what's happening here. Jesus in verse 2 has begun this discourse. He's teaching early in the morning and people are coming to him and he sat down. He's teaching right there in the temple and then there is a disruption. The scribes and the Pharisees like bust up in there. I don't know how else to say it. They've got a lot of nerve. He's right in the middle of a lesson, and they come in and, and bring a woman that they caught sinning because of multiple ages in the room. Let me just leave it at that, please. They brought a woman caught in the act of sinning, and they sat her right in the midst, right in the middle as the center of attention, unavoidable right there, and then they just start talking. Now, we've seen this in our land of the free and home of the brave. I'm sure you've seen some YouTube clips or 
news clips of town halls that went south really quick when they did like open mic, right? I mean, people start screaming, people just jump up and interrupt people while they're talking. It's, we've lost the art of civility or conversation, but it's kind of what's happening here. Here are the folks that are supposed to know better that bust up in the temple while Jesus is teaching and break it all up. And then we see this description, but they've spun it for their benefit. Look at what they do. They catch this woman in the act of adultery, and then they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? I find it interesting that these guys do exactly what I've done in part of my Christian walk that I'm sad to admit to you. I like the parts of the Bible that point out other people's sin. Y'all, y'all, anybody in here got a PhD and... Uh, you know, just, just helping. Oh, man, I wish brother so-and-so was here to hear this. Oh, I, that's a good word for her, right? Lord, here am I. Send him, right? We, we pray things. We, we think things like that. But, but here the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, now, now the law says, well, they quoted part of the law because the law called for both parties. Both parties. I want you to see something here, too. Just a little side note here. Um, it's not a good religion that uses women as an object to make a point. That's not a biblical Christianity, by the way. Uh, these are fellow image bearers that are worthy of dignity. In fact, when Jesus addresses her later and uses the phrase woman, it's a term of endearing respect to this sinner who's been paraded right in front of him. He never disrespected women in the way that so many do today. Here's the charge. They bring this woman in, kind of put her right in the midst. There are two parties involved. Somehow, even though they caught this woman in the act, only one person shows up. That tells you more than I think they meant to say there. And they reveal their true motives in the first part of verse 6. Look at what they say. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Then I, I wrote down that word test. The word is... Perazzo, it, it means to tempt, to set somebody up. Have you had this happen to you? I hope you haven't done this, or if you have, you're not still doing this. But where you're not really interested in having a dialogue with somebody, you've set a trap. You've set a verbal trap for them to step in so you can pounce. Well, that doesn't mark us as believers. That's not the way we should have conversations. We don't think that way, operate that way. We shouldn't if we're filled with the Spirit This is the way the scribes and Pharisees trying to trip up our Lord act. Take note of that. They reveal their motive. And then Jesus, I wrote down this word in the second part of six, distraction. Is he distracted here? Or is he trying to create a distraction when he writes in the sand? I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but have you? I've heard so many preachers just pontificate about what he wrote in the sand. Like they just want to say, I bet he wrote down, and there are all kinds of things they come up with that that they think Jesus wrote in the sand that really alarmed uh, the men around him. But if you read the text, it's actually inconsequential that he wrote in the sand. Maybe he's just doing that to show they're not shaking him, they're not going to trap him in any way. Look at verse 7 with me. As they continued to ask him, he stands up and says to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Without sin? Ooh, 
Some have suggested that uh, when Jesus was writing, it was dates of when these men had committed similar sins. That sounds like it would make a good sermon. It's just not in the text, so you can't do that. Some have suggested it, it might have been the names of people they had sinned with or against. Again, it's not in the text. But if you look in verse 9, they didn't react to what he wrote. They reacted to what he said. Look at verse 9. It says, but when they heard it, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. So we see this direct confrontation, their departure, and now let's look finally at the last part of the text here where Jesus deals with with sin. Jesus stands up, says to her, woman, that term of endearment, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He asks about the accusers. He extends forgiveness, and he charges her as she departs changed with a command to walk in victory. Two major things that we can take from this passage that are absolutely underscored by not only the meta narrative but specific scriptures all throughout the Old and New Testament. The first is this. Jesus is powerful. And he has the power and the authority to forgive. Jesus is powerful to forgive. Jesus would say of himself in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Colossians 1 records that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him he reconciles all things to himself by the blood of his cross. Jesus has the power to forgive. This incident that we're looking at here is not some isolated issue from the first century. It's not just some textual note in the Bible. This is not just some application or misapplication of the law. This is a big deal that still resonates in 2023. If you think about what the scribes and Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up on. It's what friends that are outside the faith have tried to trip you up on. It's what liberal uh, Christianity is trying to trip conservative Christianity up on, and it's this. How do we reconcile God's justice with God's mercy? How can God be a just God and allow this to happen? How can God be a merciful God and allow this to happen? Here's the issue. How does God balance out His mercy with true justice? Let me just give you the short answer. God does it perfectly. Because he's not operating on our definitions of either one of those words. You see, our biggest struggle many times with understanding who God is or how he acts or why he moves is because our finite mind think in terms of fairness for us. Most of the time when we're talking about justice, we're trying to figure out what's fair for people involved or for us. Most of the time it's for us. We're talking about justice. Now, I, I do believe, I sincerely believe that not everything fits that category and there is a desire for the people of God to stand for what is right and what is just. Don't hear me back up from that. 
What I'm saying is God is not in conflict and is not up there playing some kind of game or, or casting lots to try to figure out, am I going to act with justice here? Am I going to act with mercy here? No, they are perfectly reconciled in himself. You want to see mercy and justice intermingled on display beautifully? Walk with me to Golgotha, to Calvary's Hill. See mercy and justice hanging on a cross for your sins, not his. Punishment for sin must be paid. The wrath of God must be satisfied for sin and Christ satisfies it for the believer. Praise God. God does this with an authority that only He has. You see, up to this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has simply helped communicate what Scripture says. People misunderstood the law. Jesus properly interpreted the law. This, this, he's forgiving sin requires something above the law. Jesus forgives her sin. He tells her he will not condemn her. Who has the right to forgive sin? Only God does. We can forgive somebody else if they've sinned against us, but our forgiveness does not absolve them of their guilt. We're commanded as Christians to walk in forgiveness. If we've been forgiven, we need to be forgiving, right? But when we forgive somebody, that doesn't absolve them of the consequences of their action or the guilt that they carry. We can let somebody off the hook, but that doesn't mean they are declared righteous. Our justice system operates on the principle of this. Innocent until proven guilty. God's is the opposite. You are guilty until declared righteous by God. And that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God can say what is good and what's not good. Only God has the power to forgive sin. And I know this is an elementary application of the text, but I hope that you'll hang with me. When you and I have our bodies laid to rest, and the pastor officiating that service says all manner of things about our souls. God is not in heaven taking notes to see whether the pastor is allowing you into heaven or not. I don't want to be crass or unkind in any way, but when's the last time you attended a funeral where the person wasn't preached into heaven? The only way that we gain an interest into heaven is by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. A resurrected Savior has forgiven us as we've been drawn to Him by the Spirit, convicted of our sins, confessed that He is Lord, and said yes to Jesus. She came to Him guilty. She needed a Savior. She came to Him a sinner, and He forgave her sin. And she left a servant because the Lord gave her a command. Jesus is powerful to forgive. You don't have a sin that's more powerful than the forgiveness that's in Christ. You, you can't create something bad enough to where God goes, oh, I don't know about that. No. Our sin debt was paid. 2,000 years ago. The next thing I would just have you note from the text, which I think bears out throughout the, much of the New Testament, Jesus 
is pleased to forgive. He's pleased to forgive. There's something much bigger happening here in those last few words in our text this morning than just this woman caught in the act of adultery being forgiven. You see, she had guilt that everybody knew about, but there was one crowd gloating over the guilt. Those were her accusers. And there was only one person that could give grace to cover her guilt. That was Christ. So here's this woman coming up to Jesus. He's illustrating something bigger. Look what he did to the accusers. He dispelled the accusers of this woman. He sent them away. How? With his word. With a declaration of her forgiveness. They had no standing. They had no case to bring. The Supreme Court of our nation this week has handed down lots of decisions in the last several of days. And invariably, in the list of those decisions, they will push something back to the lower courts or they will render and say, you have no standing on this ground to bring this case to this level. You've got to go back and get a better standing for this. Well, these accusers have no standing when Christ the Lord declares them forgiven. Now, I want to tell you something. He will dispel the great accuser in the final scenes of human history as well. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter number 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. Jesus is not just dispelling these scribes and Pharisees who caught this woman. He will dispel Satan himself who would try to accuse you before the very throne of heaven. He'll cast him down. You know why? Because he's God and he has the authority to do that. He dispels our accuser because he is pleased to forgive us when we come to him on his terms. Look at what else he said there. He he sent the accusers away. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I want you to think of the public humiliation this woman suffered in that moment. She's standing there publicly, visibly for people to see her. And she walks away with no condemnation. Wow. You know what? As Lord, he encourages us with the same freedom. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Our accuser has no case if we're in Christ. There's no condemnation for us when we are in Christ. And finally, under this him pleasing to forgive, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He's commanded her to walk toward victory over the flesh, and he commands us to do the same thing. In Galatians, the Bible says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and its desires. Wow. We stand forgiven. There's no condemnation. And we've been commanded and equipped to walk in God's spirit. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a great English prince who went to visit a famous king of Spain. The prince was taken down into the galleys to see the men who were chained to the oars and doomed to be slaves for life. The king of Spain promised the prince in honor of his visit that he would set free any prisoner that he chose. So the prince goes from one prisoner to another. He went to one and said, my poor fellow, I'm so sorry to see you in this plight. How came you here? The prisoner responded, ah, sire, false witnesses give evidence against me. I'm suffering wrongfully. Indeed, said the prince. And he passed on to the next man. My poor fellow, I'm so sorry to see you here. How did it happen? Sire, I, I did wrong, but, but it wasn't any great wrong. I, I shouldn't be here. Indeed, says the prince. And he went on to others who told him similar tales. At last he comes to one prisoner who says, Sire, I'm often thankful that I'm here. For I'm sorry to own that if I had received my due, I should have been executed. I'm certainly guilty of all that was laid to my charge. And my severest punishment is just. The prince replied to him wittingly, It's a pity that such a guilty wretch as you should be chained among all these innocent men. And therefore, I'll set you free. Spurgeon's point, all of them were guilty. But one was ready to admit his guilt. One was ready to admit his guilt. Others had committed crimes themselves but refused to admit them or saw the deeds of others as worse than theirs. You are not ready for forgiveness if you're living in a world of comparison to others. You need to see your sin for what it is. Your wrong for what it is. Your guilt for what it is. But I've come to remind you this morning, your guilt is no match for God's grace. Jesus completely forgives. Of all the people that stood in front of Jesus in this account, you've got the gloaters, you've got other spectators, only one kind of stayed humble and low and offered no defense, just waited until Christ confronted her. When Jesus forgives you, you are forgiven. John will go on and say later in this chapter, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. We know that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. One songwriter said, Hallelujah, thank God I am free from this world of sin. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been born again. Hallelujah, I'm saved by His marvelous grace. I'm so glad that I found out He would bring me out and show me the way. Let me just give a note to my brothers and sisters in Christ in here in the morning. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and don't sin anymore. Since we've been forgiven, I've mentioned it already. Just a reminder for you this morning in case the Lord's pressing you in this part. 
Since we have been forgiven, part of our going and sinning no more means that we are to be forgiving like Jesus. Every believer must, by the help of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to forgive. If you're struggling to forgive this morning, I want you to know that that's a real threat to your intimacy with God. And if by some chance you're sitting here this morning with clenched fists, proverbially, hard-hearted, intentionally, actively, and consciously resisting forgiving others, I think I could make a case from God's word that your soul is in jeopardy. If hurt people hurt people, then freed people should free people. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. I'm going to ask Julia to come this morning as we prepare to transition to the Lord's table. Maybe you need to be forgiven this morning. You've not been caught and brought (laughs) like this woman was, but the Holy Spirit has called you out this morning. If you've never come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, why not today? I Promise me, if there's a desire, if you're ready to own that guilt and take it to Jesus, if you have been thrust at the feet of this Nazarene from the other side of the globe today who walked and lived and died and resurrected, he stands with open arms to receive you today, to completely forgive you today and make you a new creature in him. But you need to recognize your guilt. The only one gloating over your sin is the enemy himself. There's grace that Christ can offer you today. For the believer this morning, I just want to remind you that Scripture clearly communicates us. In fact, John in later letters would remind us that we have a continual need for God's forgiveness. He would write in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we are lying to ourselves. And we're not very good at it. (laughs) The truth isn't in us. But since we have a Savior and Lord, we have a continual solution to that problem. In 1 John, you know it, 1-9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I just tell you something this morning? Jesus completely forgives. And it's all throughout Scripture. I pray this morning that not only you know the forgiveness of God, but that you walk in that forgiveness and it manifests in you forgiving others. Let's pray.
everything that is sacred and blessed. You're the altar, the sacrificer, and the sacrifice. And it can only be from your blessing on our attempts at worship this morning when we remember your one all-sufficient sacrifice. Lord, we come to celebrate that this morning in the deepest and most meaningful way that you gave us as an example, Lord, as we come to your table. Lord, it's your table, so we invite you to sit as king this morning. Everything at this table is yours, the bread, the fruit of the vine, all the elements of the banquet, and the people in this room. Lord, come. Come to this banquet. Come to your church. Come to your house of prayer this morning. Come and bless your people in that special way that you do. In Christ's name, amen.